Hi, I'm Anna McEwen, and this is The Epic Narrative. And now, my dad, Bob Switzer. All right, I, I, I didn't, I mean, I kind of left you hanging we, we, last week, but I didn't, I didn't want to go for two hours last week, uh, just because. <laughs> I, I could have gone two hours. I'd just rather uh, take a break, come back the next day, for me the next day, I know for you the next week, and let's continue with this, with, with what's happening here. So we have this, this civil war, that's, that's this potential civil war. It's, a, it's definitely a royal um, family civil war. This is a royal battle. This is a, this is a, a feud at the very at the, <laughs> at the lowest level. This is a family feud. I know it takes on a whole new uh, in, uh, you know, whole new level here. We call it family feud. Clearly not hosted by Steve Harvey. It's clearly not funny. David is set up in this uh, small uh, armed or walled village, walled city, and uh, people are bringing in resources and bringing in men. So in chapter 18 of 2 Samuel, we see David mustered the men who were with him and appointed them, pointed over them commanders of thousands and commanders of hundreds. So clearly we have several thousands of, of men here at this point. Now he started out with 600, all of whom were palace guards so they were highly trusted highly valued uh well-trained uh, individuals he also has one-third of the command uh of joab a third under the command of joab's brother abishai and a third under it uh itti or Ittai, uh the the gittite so we it at the very least we probably have three thousand soldiers at this point but it also you know, he divides them up a third, a third, and a third. And then out of that, they divide up into commanders of probably 500, which is basically what we determined back in the day about Uriah, that he was a commander of 500. So these are guys that are well known and trusted and have reputation. These, I just, I, w- I want you to know that the people who showed up here weren't random farmers and um you know, merchants from around this around the countryside saying, "Hey, David, we're with you because you're awesome." These were these were well-trained uh, leaders and warriors. Uh, probably many of them experienced. And when they heard that Absalom had had you know started this coup, and they heard that David had left Jerusalem, they went looking for David. And eventually, of course, word got out. I mean, not right away. Obviously, uh, Absalom, you know, searched for him that night. Didn't didn't find him. Uh, kind of, he kind of knew that David would um, find a place to reside. That 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 wasn't an issue. The issue was he wanted to put together an army big enough that, regardless of of who decided to support David and wherever David was hiding or setting up shop, it wouldn't matter because his his army would be so much bigger and so much more powerful that regardless of David's strategies and experience, uh, Absalom would prevail and it would be a great victory. So in in pride and, and in arrogance, I have this visual of... <laughs> of Absalom absolutely decked out for this battle. Now he's he's already centered himself uh while he's waiting probably for several weeks, maybe up to a month for all the troops to gather from all over the country. The some of them are coerced, some of them are come voluntarily, but but he's you know, he's putting together a massive amount of of men, massive amount so that it looks it looks overwhelming it's part of this is psychological warfare and we even do that today uh you know we don't in military in military strength uh rumors uh, are released <laughs> information is released as to the equipment we have or the the uh ability of our of our weapons so that 
enemies hear about it and they think, ah, man, like if we go up against them, like they they have bombs that will literally, you know, recognize our fingerprints and chase us through the through the world or whatever. Like they, we we let people know how big we are. We let people know how powerful we are. We let people, we let rumors slide out, information slide out about our our weaponry and our numbers, our mobility. Uh, we overwhelm people. And, uh, you know, I think back to um, the des- Desert Storm, right? We went in there, and I know, uh, politics aside, we went in there mostly because Saddam Hussein had let rumors become verifiable information that he had nuclear weapons. Weapons of mass destruction. Dirty bombs. And it turns out he probably didn't have any of it. He had he had enough uh, trickery to make it to to you know to let out enough evidence to make it look like these things could exist. But in reality, he didn't. And unfortunately, you know, then it turned into a political quagmire. But the initial battle, right, was overwhelming. It was overwhelming. Because he did not have the troops he said he had. Uh, they did not have the weapons that he said they had. And they did not have the bombs that they said, that he said he had. But he let, it, he let those rumors fly because it's intimidating, theoretically. Now, the same thing, that same mentality is still, is still in this time period for Absalom. He wants it to look massive. He knows most of the people that are showing up are not actually warriors. I mean, they're willing to fight, but they're not battle trained and they're going to follow Absalom. And I think Absalom, because of his pride and because of of the plan that he's enacting, like he wants to look the part. If you could picture the most impressive uh, battle gear of the day, like he's going to wear it. And remember, he's gorgeous. Remember, he is he is head to toe the best looking guy in the world. He is not going to wear something that doesn't accentuate his beauty. He's going to make sure that it's something that is perfect for who he thinks he is. So he's preparing his battle uh, armor. Like you can kind of picture he's got military strategy meetings going on and they're trying to figure out Who's going to be in charge of this thousand? Who's going to be in charge of that thousand? And of course, Absalom's not a great leader. He's not a military leader. He's he's a he's a calculated, shrewd, uh, intelligent, prideful man. And so he's having these meetings, and politics are being played. It's not diplomat diplomatic. It's political. So people are being put in charge of things that probably shouldn't be put in charge of things because of the things because they're saying the right words or they have made promises in in the right way. And Absalom, uh, you know, if this was a movie, I picture Absalom kind of distracted most of the time because he wants to make sure he looks good. He wants to make sure that in this strategy, he looks like he's leading the battle. He wants to look like the hero. He wants to be the king. He wants to be undeniably better than his father, which of course he can't do in one battle because David had his, you know, this long history. He's a legend. It'd be like it'd be like uh, you know, a rookie trying to prove in one game that they are better than a legend. And you know, I'm I'm from New England, so we were we were overwhelmed right we had 20 years of Tom Brady and I cannot tell you the number of preseasons or you know the first three or four weeks of a of a season where where there was at least two if not three rookies that were being compared to Tom he's greater than Tom they're going to be this guy's going to be greater than Tom Brady and yet for 20 years here in New England nobody came close because as the you know as the season wore on the rookies would fall fall by the wayside. Now, do I think he'll be surpassed? I don't know, man. That's he's still he's still kicking. He's not even here anymore. 
so I don't know, but I suppose probably eventually. But there are some really good quarterbacks that come and go. And David's the same sort of way as far as a leader goes. There were some really good leaders that popped up, really good uh, warriors that popped up. But in the end, they couldn't sustain. David's been around for years. He's been king now for over 20 years. He's won multiple battles, multiple little ins, you know, uh, or insurrections. No, what do I want to say? Incursions <laughs> into, you know, into his borders, people that are trying to intimidate him. And David shuts him down. He shuts him down. Not that he's on the battlefield anymore, but it's, uh, you know, it's impressive. And Absalom's not going to overtake his dad in one fell swoop, but he wants to. Like, that's the arrogant part of him. And I think he's really concerned that he looks good, that that when the history books are written, he's the one who is sustained. Later on in the chapter, I think it's later on in this chapter, we see that, you know, that he literally has already, he... Even before he, he took over the, the kingdom, he had already uh, had made. Why are you stuttering today, Bob? My gosh, will you put together a sentence without going, ah, uh, man, you're driving me crazy today. He put a monument to himself in the valley, in the monument valley. He, he built a big old tower in the monument valley and he, and he named it. Absalom's monument. I mean, that's <laughs> that's that's how <laughs> that's how arrogant this guy is. He's like, listen, I'm I'm not married. I don't have any children, so I need I need to be remembered. I need somebody to remember me. I need my story to be written. That reminds me of um, that show that that musical Hamilton. Man, is that oh what a brilliant musical. I know I'm not telling anybody anything new, but wow, 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 wow. Okay, sorry. David gets all his men together. They are kind of marching or they are assembling outside the city or just out, just inside the city, one more, right around the city gate. And um, they're putting things together. And David said, I'm going out with you. And the commanders, his three mighty men there, uh, two of them, of course, are his nephews. They're like, David, you can't come with us. He's like, why not? Like, I, I want to be there. Like, this this was, this was is my son coming up against me. I want to be there. I want to make sure it's done right. I want to make sure no one kills this kid. That's really what his heart is. And these guys know Listen, David, their their number one goal is to kill you. We are vastly outnumbered. And if by chance we have to run, if by chance we have to retreat, they're not going to care if they kill 10, you know, 10,000. It, it's not going to matter. You are worth 10,000 of us. They're not really even going to chase us. If we have to run, the only thing they're running after is you. You need to stay back here at the city where at the very least the gates can be shut and you can survive a little bit longer. We can all get back here. Some of us can get back here and protect you. So David, you know, he reluctantly says yes. And I, th I think that this is kind of taking place in front of all the men. And David says, you know what? I'll do whatever seems best to you. So the so the so it says in verse 4, So the king stood beside the gate while all the men marched out in units of hundreds and of thousands. So, you know, hundreds, probably, like I said, between probably five hundreds and then thousands. So they were whatever, however you want to, whatever name you put on that, battalions and, and groups and whatever. Then they're all assembled there, and he, he commands Joab, Abishai, and Ittai. He says, be gentle with the young man Absalom for my sake. All the troops heard the king given this order concerning Absalom to each of the commanders. So this is a public display on David's part. Don't kill the young man Absalom. Now, it doesn't mean Dave, uh, Absalom's a young man like he's you know 18 years old. He's not. He's probably 
30. But David's saying, don't kill my son. Don't kill my son. Be gentle with him. I get it. He's leading an army against you. I know battles. I understand warfare. But I don't want you to kill him. This is going to turn into hand-to-hand combat. We have a strategy. Our strategy is to divide, is to confuse, is to break down their their organization in such a way that it becomes a ton of one-on-one battles, a, you know, five-on-five battles, three-on-two battles. Our goal is to is to divide them, confuse them, not give them any central command. That's what our goal is. I know it could get confusing, but I'm telling you, if you run into my son, do not kill him. That's what he's saying. And he says it loud enough, all the troops hear it, not just the commanders, all the troops. So David's army marched out into the city to fight Israel, and the battle took place in the forest of Ephraim. Now, this is like right up David's alley. Like this is, (laughs) like you can't find a better battleground for David to take on Uh, an army that vastly outnumbers him. Joab and Abishai have fought multiple battles on this level. They've been involved in multiple uh, scenes where they are theoretically outnumbered, outgunned, outmanned, and yet they know if we can if we can get them in a in a forest, if we can put them in a rocky area where there's going to be multiple ravines and multiple hills and start breaking down their organization, we can kill them because we are better fighters. We're better warriors. And that's exactly what the plan was. They got him into the forest of Ephraim. This shows Absalom's lack of leadership, his lack of awareness. He is not a warrior. He doesn't understand what's going on. He doesn't, he he sees them drawing them into the forest, and he thinks, this is awesome. We'll kill them all. David draws them into the forest, and he thinks, they're way too big. They're not mobile. My men are mobile. They're smaller units. They're already divided. They have excellent commanders and leaders that will you know, move them around the, 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 the oncoming troops in such a way that the oncoming troops aren't going to know what hit them. They're not going to realize that all of a sudden they're separated from the other 500 people that they came into the forest with. And now it's just a few of them and a whole lot of David's men, and then they're dead. It's pretty awesome. It's brilliant. And the battle spread out over the whole countryside. This is fascinating. What did David do? What did Joab and Abishai and Ittai do? They did exactly what they were supposed to do. They divided, they spread everybody out because as you get separated, they would, you know, the Absalom's army would run further to the flank, would try to get around what they, you know, the the quote army of David, and and the army of David would just keep letting them go, like they just kept spreading them out, and that said that the forest swallowed up more that day than the sword. There were cliffs and ravines that these guys would fall off of. They didn't know where they were. They Remember, they came from all over the country, from the north to the south. They hadn't been in this area. David had. David knew exactly what he was doing. Absalom didn't have a clue. Absalom was disoriented. He was, he was out of his league. He was overwhelmed with the responsibility. He wanted to ride in to victory, and he literally ends up riding by himself. He doesn't even have a surrounding group of men that, quote, would never leave his side. So effective was David's plan that Absalom ends up completely isolated, completely disoriented, riding through the forest as fast as he can. He has no idea where he's going. He doesn't have a central command. He doesn't know how to get back to it. If he did, like the sense of of what Absalom's going through right now is, is panic, terror. Fear, literally everything that you get when you don't center yourself <laughs> with God. But but that's uh, that's not what I'm. That's well, I guess it's a small point if you want to take it. Absalom's riding. All he's trying to do is find a way out. And as the mule 
went under thick branches of a large oak tree. I don't know if you've ever seen these. I call them scrub oaks. Like uh, here in the Northeast, we have oak trees that tend to grow straight up. Like oak trees are considered, uh, you know, really good lumber. They're hardwood. Uh, they burn for hours. Like if you can get wood for your fireplace or for your furnace and it's, you know, oak, you know that you're not going to have to keep putting wood on the fire. Once you get a good bed of coals going, you throw on some oak logs, you're going to be good for hours and it's going to be hot. So oak is oak is different in different parts of the world. Here in the Middle East, I would I would what I call scrub oak. They tend to grow thick and branchy rather than straight up. So he's riding through the forest. There's no path really for him to ride. He's riding probably on some random trail that was there from wildlife, uh, a deer path, um, something along that line. He's, again, disoriented. He's filled with terror. He's in a panic. He's riding his, He's looking. He's riding fast on in unfamiliar territory, and he's looking behind him, and he's looking beside him because David's men seem to be everywhere. Like, again, you can picture this in a movie scene, right? There's, It seems to be foggy because that's the way his mind is. It's fogged up. There's dust. There's clanking and, and, and banging of swords, and there's... There's groans of men that have been stabbed. There's there's men who are running and just just running away already, and they're yelling. They're yelling for their brothers. They're yelling for their for their uh, friends. Hey, come with me! Like we're leaving. Like get out! Get out! Get out! Run! 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 They, uh, Absalom knows that that his army is falling apart. He's seeing that his plan is falling apart. He's realizing that life is not going to go as as he had hoped. He's thinking, we may lose this. If I lose this battle, I've lost the kingdom because I'm I'm not even in the capital city. Maybe he's even thinking about um, uh, Ahithophel's advice and thinking, I should have went after dad to begin with. I should have let Ahithophel kill him. Like now I'm not even going to be king. All of this, the the amount of panic and fear and and dis, uh, disillusion and and disorientation that was caught that was inside Absalom like we can't understate this he is he is he, the weakness of his leadership is like completely overwhelming the 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 puffed up image that he has created for years about how what a, what an awesome leader he would be what an amazing you know judge king he would be it's all crashing down around him I can't understate this. I really can't. If I was doing the movie, this scene would just, you, you just build up to the scene because this is just ridiculous in its, in the negative foggy activity that's going on within, within Absalom while he's riding as fast as he can through the forest. And in this, in this oak tree, in this scrub oak, his hair gets caught up, and there's lots of theories as to how this happens, so make up your own. But in my mind, I think one of the things he had as part of his his beautiful ornament or ornamental ornamental uh, armor. Again, I don't think it was practical. I think it was designed to look good. Part of it was I think he had his thick. Remember his hair? He cut it once a year, and it weighed five pounds. Which is a lot. You got it. That's thick hair. I have a feeling that it was pulled back and up on top of his head, and it probably had some sort of gold um, wrapping uh, that that kind of formed a, a crown, but is but also as a hairpiece. And he basically had like a fountain of hair that came off the top of his head. So when he rode, it looked like uh, uh, almost like the mane of a horse. And it would flow be behind him because it was so long and thick. But it, that's what get caught up in a tree. It gets caught. It gets wedged. I don't know if just the hair got caught up in the tree because it was a thick tree and he went to duck under, or if if the 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 twisty golden uh, hair piece got wedged between a couple branches. 
but I imagine it happened quickly. He's he's probably, like I said, looking behind him, looking to the side of him, hearing the noises of warfare, hearing the, the, the wounded cry out, knowing that his his troops are are falling apart. Even as he speaks, he's riding into what he hopes is a clear area, something where at least the battle isn't raging. And he looks up, and before he can duck, his hair is caught. His head is caught. And the mule keeps running. And he's hanging there in the tree. And one of the men realizes what had happened, and he and he goes to Joab, which, again, remember, now this takes time. He didn't call him, but evidently Joab's men were in that area. So he probably wasn't too far away, probably three, four minutes. The guy runs, and he goes to Joab, and he says, Absalom is hanging in an oak tree. And Joab looks at him and says, What? You saw him? Why didn't you kill him? I mean, that's, I, it, you know, he puts it a little more words. He's like, why didn't you strike him to the ground right there? Why did you kill him? You saw Absalom and he was just hanging there. Why did you kill him? I would have, I would have given you 10 shekels of, of silver. I would have given you a warrior's belt. Like I would have given you a promotion is what he's saying. If you killed Absalom, you would have been promoted. Why are you coming to tell me this? And the man looked at him like, 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 I'm sure he's shocked. He's looking at his commander. And he goes, I, I don't care if you gave me a thousand shekels in my hands. I, I wouldn't kill the king's son. I, I heard the king tell all of, tell all of you commanders, you and, and, and everybody that we were supposed to protect Absalom for the sake of David. He's, he, he, Gave us an order and he asked us personally, I'm not going to do that. If I, I'm not going to put my life in jeopardy because eventually the king's going to find out. He says nothing is hidden from the king. You, you even probably would have kept your distance from me. Like you would have let me kill him and then you would have just kept your mouth quiet. No, he said, no, it's not worth it. I know the king gave the order. Now, this is pretty bold to do for Joe in front of Joab. It's probably one-on-one, but Joab knows he's right. So Joab doesn't strike this guy down. He looks at this guy, and in essence, he's called to order. He's called to honor the words of David. And Joab has a choice to make. He, <laughs> Joab's told, right? And Joab has to decide, what do I do? Well, he just, I don't think it took him long. He says, you know what? I'm not going to wait like this for you. So he took three javelins in his hands. And he runs over to Absalom. He, he grabs three javelins. And I'm and he's got men that follow him, right? Joab doesn't doesn't do battle one-on-one with nobody around him. Not not I mean I'm I'm sure he does battle one-on-one, but as a commander, he has uh, you know, probably 10 guys that never leave his side. I'm sure they battle on their own, but they always keep an eye on Joab. And if Joab starts to run, they run. So Joab grabs some weapons and he starts running into the into the forest and he finds Absalom hanging in the tree and he plunges all three of these uh, javelins into the heart of Absalom while he was still alive in the oak tree. This is this this is very dramatic because there is there are so many options as to what's going on. Did did Joab say anything to Absalom? Did he look Absalom in the eye and say, you know, you fool? I cannot believe you did this to your father. Remember, Joab was the one, whether he was tricked or or his heartfelt desire was to bring. David Comfort, he found a way to bring Joab back to the city. And even though he knew Joab didn't have any authority and he didn't go when Joab called him, he had done something for Joab. He had given Joab an opportunity to live with his family again, to have the wealth that was 
given to him by you know by being a royal uh, member a member of the royal family. He had done a lot for Absalom, and Absalom, in essence, thanked him by following Abishai and taking over the kingdom. So Absalom, uh, I mean, Absalom might have might have seen this coming. Joab might have might have said to him some things. I don't know what though. I mean, if I was making a movie, I don't know which is more dramatic to have a little monologue or Joab's like, you know, you rebellious, arrogant fool. You had the whole kingdom at your disposal and you chose to, you know, destroy it. You just, you chose to destroy your father or whatever. I don't know. Or does he just look at him and is, and is everything spoken without saying a word? And he doesn't make him suffer. He goes right for the heart. He kills him immediately. And he puts all three javelins in there. And then it says the ten men that surrounded him, surrounded uh, Joab, they stood in a circle around Absalom, and they also struck him and killed him. Now, why would they do that? They did that because they knew that they didn't want Joab to receive the, uh, you know, the only... They didn't want Job to, to be the only one responsible for the death of the king's son. They did this because they had sworn allegiance to Joab. They had sworn, you know, sworn to protect Joab at all costs. So they, they, in essence, were saying, listen, Joab, if you get put to death for this, we'll get put to death to the, for this. So Joab puts you know, a, 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 the, the initial javelin into the heart of uh, Absalom while he's hanging there in the tree. And while he's bleeding out, the other men come and they stab him. And and Joab continues to put javelins, all three javelins, into Absalom's heart. The other men stab him, cut him, throw, you know, maybe shoot an arrow into him. There's no way get. There's no way Absalom gets out of this alive. And ideally, in their minds, there's no way to nail this down to just one person. Who killed Absalom? We're gonna we're gonna spread the responsibility out. And possibly give us all the way out. So when when Absalom is dead, Joab sounds has the trumpet sounded, and all the troops start stop pursuing the other the other army, and all of them are basically fleeing for their homes. Like there's they hear that you know the the sound of retreat, calling off the battle. And they all know they are free to go. Their leadership is gone. Uh, there's already rumors that Absalom is dead. Word is getting out that people have saw that he was dead. I'm guessing if Joab did his job right, he made sure that Absalom was seen dead. He buried him literally right there. He threw him into a big pit in the forest and piled a heap of rocks on top of him. He wanted to make sure that this royal feud was over, that there was no way for David to resurrect <laughs> this feud again. Because he, I like I said, I don't know if this was strat. This was probably strategy as well as personal. Because he saw how David was when when Absalom was in exile. He saw how much David mourned for him, longed for him, wanted his son close to him again. And he thought, if I let this guy live, David's going to find a way to give this guy some sort of role in the family again. And it's he's just going to cause trouble. He constantly causes trouble. Joab had, you know, he recognized the the cunning politics that had been going on for years. He probably was somewhat embarrassed that he didn't see it coming sooner. He probably felt some responsibility for this battle even taking place because if he had been paying closer attention to what Absalom was doing, he he would have put an end to it. Remember, this is Absalom who, who lit Job, Joab's uh, field on fire so that Joab would come and see him. He manipulated Joab to give him the authority that he didn't have anymore when he came back from exile. 
He knew what he was doing. Joab should have seen this coming, and I think all of that is wrapped up in the fact that he kills Absalom and he throws him in a pit and buries him, buries him with rocks and calls it a day. Now we have to get the information back to David. Remember, he's a couple miles away. And so uh, Amahazi, son of Zadok. So this is one of the priest's sons, which is interesting, as always, right? He's one of the one of the runners who um, brought the initial information about Absalom's plans from his father, who got it from Hushi and the servant girl. Remember, Hushi told the servant girl, servant girl. Uh, uh, sorry, Hushi told Zadig. Zadig told the servant girl. Servant girl tells. Jonathan and Amahaz, Amahazi, Ahimahaz, <laughs> and da 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 da. So he's he's a he's an important messenger. He's a runner. Uh, he's like, let me run and take the news to the king that the Lord has vindicated him by delivering him from the hand of his enemies. And Joab says, you are not gonna do that today. You can take the news some other time. You can be a runner some other time, and not today. Because the king's son is dead. Now, why would he do this? Well, he's seen what happens when you bring news to David that a king is dead. Remember? <laughs> the uh, the Malachite, right? That brought the news to David that Saul was dead. He brought the, the wrist bands and the and the crown he's like david you know the man who's been pursuing you for all these years the one who's been trying to kill you for all these years is finally dead da, 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 da. and david's like how dare you bring me such horrible news and he kills him <laughs> i don't not a good reaction and then you remember david did the same thing to the two guys who went in and killed saul's son who had set up his kingdom in the in the northern part of the of the country right david was at hebron uh, in the southern part of the country, this guy set up his own kingdom under his uncle um, Ahab. Ahab, I think. No, is it a Abner? <laughs> Sorry, he set it up under Abner, and uh, they they kill him in his sleep. Remember, they they go seek into the palace. They were traitors, not traitors. Well, they were traitors technically, but they were also merchants. And they, they went in, they, they were raiders, sorry. They go in for supplies and then they leave and go raid other countries and bring the the bounty back to their to their king. Well, they just walked into the palace while he's napping. They kill him in his sleep. They go and tell David, what's David do? He kills them. Joab's thinking, listen, I can't send Zadok, Zadok's son <laughs> to the king to tell him that Absalom's dead. He'll kill him. I can't, I can't risk it. Like, you're too valuable. You're the son of a high priest. You're a great kid. I really like you. You're a fabulous runner, by the way. I'll give you news to take to David some other time, but not this time. And he looks around and he sees uh, a Cushite, which evidently has something to do with where they were from. And he says, go tell the king what you have seen. So he's just another runner. So the Cushite bows down before Joab and runs off. Then Ahimaz, 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 the son of Zadok, he goes to Joab, but he says, come what may, please let me run behind the Cushite. And he says, listen, why do you want to go? You don't have any news that will bring you any reward. Trust me, if you go tell David that Absalom's dead, you're going to get punished for that. Like, it's not going to end well. This is not a good plan. Why do you want to go? What is it about it? And and Joab's son, or not Joab's son, sorry, Zadok's son looks at him. He says, come what may, I want to run. He's like, I don't care what happens. I want to bring the news. So there was something probably intuitive in, in Zadok's son that he loved the opportunity to bring word of victory. He wanted the opportunity to stand before the king. He he was he was a messenger. This was not a role he took lightly. It wasn't a flippant thing like, 
oh, you're you're like you'll just be a messenger. Messengers, runners, messengers, they were like they were so highly trusted because the information they brought had to be true. And ideally, as unfiltered with their personal uh, opinions as possible. And when you're bringing news of a battle to a king who isn't in the battle, and especially to a king like David who understands battle, like this, there was a lot of positive stuff, and Zadok's son really wanted to go. So Joab says, he gives in. He's finally, he's like, all right, fine. Go, bring him news. And off he goes. Now there's, they, they, both runners, both runners go different ways. The Cushite or Ethiopian, he takes the shorter route, much more difficult, probably up and down really steep ravines, but it's, it's not as far. Zadok's son takes a much longer route, but it's through the plains, which means he can he can run at a steady pace. So this is kind of like uh, a mini marathon. It's like a mini, not a marathon, because it's only like three miles, but it's a longer way, probably more dusty. You're tired already. You've been in battle. And they 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 both are showing up almost at the same time, even though the, the Ethiopian or Kushite had the, um, had the shorter route and, and the head start. So while David's sitting there between the inner and outer gates, so he's just probably pacing, wondering what's happening. A watchman's on the roof of the gateway of the wall. He looks out. He sees a man running alone. And he goes, uh, runner coming. And David said, is he alone? Because if he's alone, he has good news. And what? Uh, so basically, just for what it's worth, like if the battle was going bad and a runner was was bringing news of retreat, there was usually guys not far behind him. <laughs> if the if Joab was sending like a message back, like, hey, tell David we're we're being defeated, we're in retreat, like there there would have been a dust cloud behind the runner. So David knows if he's all by himself just running out there toward the city, it's good news. And then the watchman saw another runner. Look, another man is running alone. Two runners. David said, wow, he must be bringing good news too. Now, this is interesting because the watchman says, it looks to me like the first one runs like the son of Zadok. So I don't know what style that is, but I, I have been a runner. I ran track. I ran cross country. Uh, I don't run now. My my you know My body breaks down too quickly, but... I do know that runners have distinctive styles. And if you watch running, if you watch whether it's marathons or sprints, you can see it. The way the arms move, the way the legs move, how high the knees go, how far the kick is, where the chest is positioned, how the head uh, is positioned. I mean, a very distinctive runner in my lifetime when I was a kid, a guy named Michael Johnson. Oh, my word. You know, at the time, he was just breaking all these world records and Olympic records in the 400 meters. Uncanny how quickly he could, he could run. But he had a very distinctive style, very straight-up style. And then uh, there was another guy named Edwin Moses. He ran the, uh, the 400 hurdles. Unbelievable style. Amazing. So smooth. He... Like this guy would go over hurdles and and if you didn't know there was a hurdle in your in his lane, like from the from the wide shots, on a on a wide shot watching Edwin Moses run, you would you could be easily fooled into thinking he's the only guy without any hurdles in his lane. Because you couldn't even tell he was going over things. So there was something distinctive about the running of Zadok's son, and he was such a, a known messenger a known runner, 
a trusted man, that he had done it so many times that the watchman, who evidently was somebody who knew David and probably came with him from the palace when David left the city because he knew the running of Zadok's son. And he's like, it looks like Zadok's son. And David says, whoa, he's a good man. He would come with good news. And and Zadok's son comes running in and he calls out to the king, all is well. And he bowed down before the king with his face to the ground. He's like, praise be the Lord your God. He has delivered up those who have lifted up their hands against the Lord my king. Now, this is great news. Everybody around David is clapping. They're probably, oh, sigh of relief. Like, yes, we can go home to Jerusalem. This is going to be amazing. Like the wives were like giddy. The, the you know, every, everybody's happy. This is good. And David's first question is that young man, is my son Absalom safe? And Zadok says, there was a lot of confusion just as Joab was about to send the king's servant and me. But I don't know what it was. Wow. Uh, is that called a lie? Uh, I, I, I don't, at the very least, he omits some information here that he clearly knew. Everybody knew Absalom was dead. He's just like, yeah, there was a lot of confusion. Uh, just, you know, I was sent... Just as I was being sent with the message, um, you know, I don't, I'm not sure exactly what happened. And the king said, well, then wait here. Because he knows that there's another messenger very close. And the Ethiopian or the Cushite arrives and he says, my lord, the king, hear the good news. The Lord has vindicated you today by delivering you from the hand of all those who rose up against you. And the king says to the Cushite, how is the young man Absalom? Is he safe? And he says, May the enemies of my Lord, the king, and all those who rise up to harm him be be like that young man. So, in other words, he's dead. <laughs> he he flowers up the, the whole message. He tries to make it clear, like, listen, what happened to him, I hope happens to everybody who rises up against you because you are an amazing, like, all of this is flattery. All of this is honoring. All of this is is truth. From the Cushites' point of view, David, you're the only king. And this kid rose up against you and he tried to overthrow you. And I hope everyone who tries to do that dies, just like he did. Now, maybe Zadok's son didn't deliver that information because of the warning that Joab had given him in the woods, which was basically David kills everybody who tells him that a king is dead. David doesn't like it when his enemies are murdered. You tell David that Absalom's dead, there's a good chance you don't make it out alive. Matter of fact, so far it's 100% you don't make it out alive. Which goes to the heart of God in David. David didn't want his enemies to die. God doesn't want his enemies to die. (gasps) You said what? God destroys his enemies. He does. Yeah, his enemies do get wiped out, but not the people. The enemy's plans are put asunder. The enemy's plans are laughed at by God. But he doesn't destroy them. He doesn't kill them. And that's what I think I see when I read this story. David's heart is not for his enemies to be dead. He wants them. He wants them to be in a position to receive the blessings of God. He wants him to understand the love of God, the acceptance of God, the resurrecting power of relationship that God has. And maybe because of all that, Zadok's son doesn't tell David that Absalom is dead. But in this case, he doesn't wipe out the Cushite. It says the king is shaken. And he goes up into his room over the gateway. So he he took a, a a position in the city that literally over overlooks the entrance of the city. And he began to cry, and he cried out. He said, "My son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom." 
If only I had died instead of you. This was a devastating blow to David. And and we'll uh <laughs> the mourning that he goes into over the loss of his son is probably more so reflective of the sense of loss he had as a father to Absalom. He lost the opportunity to be all that David could have been to him. So you can kind of imagine that those who were relieved the family members that were there around the city gate, the troops that were set there in case of retreat and they had to protect David against uh, overwhelming odds, the sense of relief and excitement that they had of victory, the idea that now they can go back home, everything can be as it was, all of that starts to be, be stolen. All of that sense of Excitement begins to shift because David is crying out and he's crying out in a place where they would hear him because his, his room, his balcony, his, he over, you know, his voice could have, would have flown right over the top of the city gate. And this is where uh, David is. And this is what David is doing as the men we're back in the in the forest with Joab, right? They had gathered. The two runners are gone. The men have 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 uh, regrouped. They've looked at their victory. They've counted their losses. They they did amazingly well. They they did some recon. Uh, no one's regathering. There's no central command post. Uh, Absalom, of course, is dead. Everybody else is on the run. Basically, because now that they've lost this, everybody, you know, they, all the troops know, if I get caught, I'm the traitor because David is now king again. Like this is, this could go really bad for all of us. And all of them know that. So they're running, they're scattered, they've, they've dropped whatever weapons they have. They don't want to be seen as a threat to David's army. They're, they're done, they're gone. And these guys are like, hey, let's go back to the city. And this is where they find David. This is where David is. He's crying and mourning the loss of his son. And that's where we're going to pick up the story next next week in uh, chapter 19. Because life is not that, that uh, simple now that he's won the battle. And often that happens for a lot of people, right? You win the battle. You have a great experience. It's like, yes, I've defeated the enemy. And then your life gets super complicated. <laughs> we'll talk about that next week on The Epic Narrative. everyone thanks for listening if you like what you heard you can subscribe to this podcast on any platform you use you can also reach out to bob for questions or booking at thebobswitzer.com or email him at thebobswitzer at gmail.com see you next week guys